But he wasn't the one who invented the drink. What was his name, John? I'll tell you. I'm going to leave that right there, Kurt, out of respect for our listeners. Unadorned perfection. Interesting. It's a good metaphor for life. What are you talking about, Kurt? I have no idea. Talk about camera obscura. They are the colors of the Italian flag. Prince of Wales, court of one, two, three. I was looking for the word diuretic. Well, here's a little sunshine coming to your ears. It's a smart drivel podcast. Sunshine, not in a bottle, not in a can of tuna, but in a podcast coming right to you. Kurt Schneider here, your co-host with... Uh, your other co-host, John Ellenthal, and I'm still trying to figure out how to get sunshine into my ears. Well, it's been blowing up some other parts of your body. Um, you know, I'll take sunshine wherever I can get it. Any orifice will do. So, Preferably my pores. So, smart drivelers, for this episode, we, and by the way, uh, someone mentioned to me yesterday, one of our listeners, that we seem to always come back to this one macro topic a lot. Seems we talk about food a lot, John. Uh, well, food is certainly one of the few universal parts of the human experience, Kurt, wouldn't you say? Well, universal in nature, but what makes food so cool is very specific in execution, right? We, that's why we have different types of restaurants. We have from all these different, not only countries, but regions within countries, villages within regions, homes within villages, plates within homes. I mean, it just keeps getting smaller, smaller, smaller. You keep cutting it up, cutting it up, cutting it up until you get to mitochondria. What are you talking about, Kurt? I have no idea. Okay, today we're going to talk about where great food names come from, right? There are foods that we have, dishes we order quite often. Where did some of these names, you know, a podcast a while ago, we talked about songs with women's names in them and who are the women behind the songs? Well, who are the people or the events behind names of food? So I mentioned Beef Stroganoff. I'm going to start right there and jump right in, John. Like, the kids that do a cannonball into the pool with everyone around them, I'm jumping in. Splash. So are you going to splash stroganoff sauce all over us? Yes. Wouldn't that be nice? Metaphorically, of course. Beef stroganoff was a staple of American diets in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And it was pretty fun when you were growing up and your mom said, we're having beef stroganoff tonight, right? You got all excited. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, mushrooms and this great creamy sauce all over noodles and beef. Oh, it was delicious. Well, where it came from was 17th century, yes, John, Russia, as the name would sound, Russia. Yes. Now, there, there was a guy, Count Pavel Alexandrovich Stroganov, with a V. Stroganov. Yeah. We, we, of course, Americanized it to Stroganov with Fs. He was born in Paris. Paris. He was born in Paris. And then he went back to Russia and he brought his French cook with him. But one day he's like, listen, can you add some like Russian-esque? Can you try to give this French food, this Frenchy food, some Russian flair? So the chef's like, all right, you know what? I'm, I got some French mustard, which I love. I'm taking this Russian sour cream. I'm going to add it to it. 
we're going to dump it all over beef and noodles. Beef stroganoff was born. Excellent. You know, this is not a recipe show, but thank you for the detail there. You suggested that it was a staple of the American diet back in the 1970s. So do you think they were actually scenes in American kitchens where kids said, hey, mom, what's for dinner or dad? What's for dinner? And mom or dad said beef stroganoff and the kids actually went, yes, we're having beef stroganoff for dinner. First of all, I appreciate you trying to add your 2021 filter to things, but I doubt there was a lot of dad what's for dinner in the 50s, 60s and 70s. It just what society was all about. But yes, weren't you excited about beef stroganoff? I loved it. Is that the one where you would pour in the Campbell's cream of mushroom soup into the sauce? Or is that a different one? Uh, We're going to get to that. I think it probably was part of it. Yes. I have a joke for you, Kurt. Knock, knock. It's not a knock, knock joke, Kurt. Okay. What do you call a cow that is masturbating? Beef stroking off. (laughs) When did you learn that one? Uh, I was probably uh, in the third or fourth grade just based on the, how it feels. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how we're starting. Beef stroganoff. Now, every time you order it, which is probably zero, you'll think about where it came from. So when you have a hearty meal like beef stroganoff, you need to have the right drink to go with it. Let me ask you a personal question. Kurt, are you a pepper? Oh, Dr. Pepper you're talking about. Remember the commercials? I'm a pepper. You're a pepper. Wouldn't you want to be a pepper too? Yes. Is there a lot of pepper habanero in the, in the drink? No, but did you ever wonder who this Dr. Pepper guy was? Not really, because, you know, that's the purpose of smart drivel, because (laughs) you've never wondered who the Dr. Pepper guy was. (laughs) Let's wash down our beef stroganoff with a can of Dr. Pepper. There actually was a doctor. Dr. Charles Taylor Pepper, but he wasn't the one who invented the drink because that would have been too easy. He had a former assistant named Wade Morrison and Wade Morrison and a colleague, Charles Alderton. They were the ones that they invented Dr. Pepper and chose the name and they chose the name because it sounded medicinal. And back in the days, as we've discussed with the origin of Coca-Cola that had cocaine in it. There was sort of a fad going on for tonics of sort mixed with carbonated beverages. So they thought it would sell better if they called it Dr. Pepper. I don't know that I've ever had a Dr. Pepper. And I think it's because someone once told me, probably erroneously, that it had like prune juice in it and it made you, what's the word I'm looking for, Kurt? Go to the bathroom. Okay, I was thinking of something a little bit more fanciful, but sure. Laxative qualities. I was looking for a single word, Kurt. Diuretic. I was looking for the word diuretic. And what you came up with is going to the bathroom. No, I said laxative. And the thought about laxative, I just thought about this. It comes from, I'm sure, that it gets your body to relax so you can have a movement. Not Beethoven's fifth, but something else. I'm going to leave that right there, Kurt, out of respect for our listeners. So, by the way, I know we did pet peeves a couple of weeks ago, but people who order soda, adults who order soda at dinner in a restaurant, that's a pet peeve of mine. I'm reluctant to ask why. So I think what I'll do is I'll tell you that there was a pet peeve that I discovered the other day that I wish I had added to our episode. 
And that is, that is the near certainty that when you squeeze a mustard bottle or a ketchup bottle, no matter how vigorously you have shaken the contents before the aforementioned squeeze, you're going to get some very clear liquidy ketchup or mustard water that makes what you're putting it on soggy. Yeah. Why? What the? Come on, man. And if it's a sandwich, a lot of time it is, and you're putting it directly on the bread, it makes the bread soggy. John, I'm going to bring you back to 1943, to Piedras Negras, Mexico, which of course means Black Stones, Mexico. And Piedras Negras, John, is just over the border from a U.S. military base in Fort Duncan, Texas. 1943, we're preparing for World War II. We're in World War II, of course, as of December 7th, 1941. So we're in it. And things are cranking in the military bases. Well, one day, a lot of the military wives decided to go to Piedras Negras for a shopping trip. So they went across the border. They went into Mexico. They had a nice time shopping, but they got really hungry. So they went to the Victory Club and the maitre d' took pity on them. And this is going to be a theme throughout this podcast. He went into the closed kitchen and threw whatever he could, whatever he had into one dish, heated it, gave it to him, and they loved it. They loved it so much, he put it on the menu. What was his name, John? I'll tell you. Ignacio, his nickname, Nacho Anaya. And that's how we get nachos. So we thank the wives and Ignacio for giving us this wonderful dish. And that was a great gift. And maybe that would have been a better dish to wash down with Dr. Pepper than beef stroganoff. Kurt, there was a certain incongruity in that story that I want to point out. What was the town they were in? Piedras Negras. Which sounds very Mexican. Spanish, Mexican. And what was the role of Mr. Nacho? Maitre d'. So your mixing of Spanish and French there, I found a bit, I don't know. Maitre d' has gone beyond French speaking into any restaurant. There's maitre d's in little delis, right? What do you think they call, there are not maitre d's in little delli's. Yeah, yeah. In in kosher delis, there's a maitre d'. You you want a sandwich? Sit in the back. Yeah, I don't know if that meets the test of a maitre d'. I think a maitre d' has to have a tuxedo on, don't you? Here's the thing with maitre d'. It stands for, I believe, master of. Maitre d' by itself needs to have something after it, right? And it used to always be maitre d' hotel. Hotel not being a place where you spent the night, but hotel where you ate. So we shortened it to just maitre d'. But it's, I think we just had a smart drivel moment there, Kurt. The whole maitre d' cul-de-sac of ours. Maitre Nicely d', done. It's master so, of. you got to give me something else. I can't. Be, but actually, you know what? I'd like to be a maitre d'. Just call me master of. Yes. Master of disaster, master of verbal disaster, master of fill in the blank. That could be your new bio. Yeah. On master Twitter. of master of fill in the blank. I actually like to say mustard in French better than in English. Would you like to give it a whirl here? Moutard. I like to say eggplant in French. And I, by the way, do not speak French. And I seem to derive a little less pleasure than you of speaking in English in foreign accents, because it's a big part of your persona today. I think aubergine is a really beautiful word, and it's fun to say. One day we're going to do an episode, Kurt, on words that are just downright fun to say. Walla Walla Washington. Exactly. You're getting into the spirit of it. So we'll put a 
Baba Ganoush. Okay, I think you need to stop. Don't okay. leave it in the bullpen, Kurt. We'll do it another time. I think that pizza could be my number one favorite food. I don't you know if everyone there's else in the world. Okay, the fact that it's also other people's doesn't diminish the fact that I love it. Stand out, John. Be unique. Pizza margarita. Ooh, that's what everyone orders. Yeah, so the fact that it's, again, very popular seems to take away some of its enjoyment for you. Do you know, I have a friend who made tons of pizzas, and he became at his house, and that was his thing. He told me the hardest pizza to make is the margarita. You know why? Because it is the cleanest, purest pizza, so you can't cover up your mistakes with a lot of meatballs and mushrooms and, you know, hot flakes and and hot oil and things like this, your ingredients have to be so pure and you have to cook it so beautifully because it is unadorned perfection. Interesting. It's a good metaphor for life. Unadorned perfection. Yes. Well, same guy told me to never wear black shoes, only wear brown shoes, by the way. So as you pointed out, the margarita pizza is a bit of a staple for the Italian-American cuisine lovers out there, of which there are indeed many. And a lot of people have claimed to be the inventor of the margarita pizza. But margarita refers, in my version of the origin story, margarita refers to the former queen of Italy, Margarita of Savoy. So in 1889, She's on a visit to Naples with her husband, the king, King Umberto I. Mm-hmm. And they were visiting a pizzeria, Pizzeria Brandy. And the restaurant chef and his wife honored their king and queen with a series of pizzas, three different pizzas. And the one that the queen liked the most was a particular pizza that was red sauce, white mozzarella, cheese, and fresh green basil. They are the colors of the Italian flag. And because that was her favorite, they honored her by naming the pizza after her, Margarita of Savoy, the namesake of the pizza margarita. Excellent. I've actually been to that restaurant in Naples, and I've had a pizza margarita there. And it was delicious. I did not order a Dr. Pepper with it, no. Do you know that pizza margarita, because it was the late 1800s, is clearly not the first pizza. And the original pizza is actually Pizzeria Marinara. You want to say that in Italian English, Pizza Marinara? And you know what's fun to say? Ricotta cheese, ricotta. That's a much better way than saying ricotta. Yeah, yeah. In any event, the original pizza was Pizza Marinara, and it did not have cheese. It was a pizza crust, and it had marinara sauce and some spices and garlic and things like that, but it did not have cheese. I'm going to take you back in time again to Gilded Age, New York, my son's favorite time in the world. We're talking about 1880s, 1890s, New York, Gilded Age. There's post-industrial revolution. Okay. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of fanciness. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's also a lot of poverty as well. But there's this man about town, a bon vivant. There you go, John. And this young man was incredibly hungover one day. And he, as you want to do if you're a bon vivant man about town, went to his favorite hotel in Gilded Age, New York, which was the Waldorf. And he went in and he asked the waiter, he said, listen, I'm really hungover. I want the chef 
to make me something for brunch. I want eggs. I want bacon. I want toast. And I want you to pour this hollandaise sauce over it. The guy's like, what? Went back. The maitre de hotel or the chef named Oscar Shirky, who also, by the way, came up with the Waldorf salad. But this guy's like, hmm, there's something here. He made it. He made some additions. Instead of bacon, he put Canadian bacon. Instead of toast, he put English muffin. And he named it after this young bon vivant by the name of Lemuel Benedict. Hence, Eggs Benedict, John. Have you ever had Eggs Benedict? Many, many, many times. Did you ever? I don't like Salmon Benedict. I think that's bastardizing the form. Did you wonder before you came across this new knowledge of yours? Did you ever wonder if it came from Benedict Arnold? As do most people, yes. Some people thought it was named after Pope Benedict, but they're wrong because he was a recent pope. Wasn't the Andy Garcia character in Ocean's Eleven, wasn't his Terry Benedict, right? Wasn't his name Benedict? Talk about camera obscura. Talk about an obscure point. I have no idea. Thank you for going camera obscura. At some point, you'll be discussing film noir before the end of this episode. I think Double Indemnity with Fred McMurray is the best example of film noir out there. So, Kurt, it is a true rarity for someone to finish a meal of beef stroganoff and wash it down with a Dr. Pepper. I doubt many people have finished up their eggs Benedict and said, you know what I would love now? A Tootsie Roll. The Tootsie Roll, which was invented or brought to the market in the late 1800s by a gentleman by the name of Leo Hirschfeld, who was given credit for being the developer of the first paper-wrapped penny candy in, of course, New York. He named the Tootsie Roll after his daughter, Clara, who had the nickname Tootsie. So Clara Tootsie Hirschfeld. So I'm taking you back to New York or sticking there, Gilded Age, 1876. A sea captain in the West Indies invented this dish because he's a sea captain. He's out there catching all sorts of fish and crustaceans. He gets a lobster and he adds all the stuff to it, eggs, heavy cream, pepper, because, you know, they're on the ship and they need to get full and sticky bellies. And he brings it to the famous Delmonico's restaurant in New York, the Delmonico Brothers. They had a couple of locations. Anyway, by the way, a lot of dishes were Started there, like the steak Delmonico, right? But anyway, this guy's name was Ben Wenberg. So they put it on the menu, the sea captain, as lobster a la Wenberg. Then he has a falling out, as it happens to do, with the Delmonico family. And they take it off the menu. Screw you, Wenberg. But their patrons say, that was pretty good. Can you put it back on? So they did very sneakily, so they don't get in trouble with the SEC, which didn't exist then, and nothing to do with the SEC, but the government, they switched some letters, and Lobster Wenberg became Lobster Newberg, and that's how we get it. I am surprised you have not brought up Chateaubriand, because Chateaubriand first is a word in English that you kind of say with a little accent, so you can sound all superior. Chateaubriand. But when you look at who it was named after, of course, it's a cut and a recipe for a steak. It's named for Vicomte Francois René de Chateaubriand, which is a series of words that I would imagine you would have great pleasure in ripping off there. 
He was born in the late 1700s, died in the mid-1800s. He was a French writer and diplomat. His chef is thought to have created the dish around 1822, while Chateaubriand was ambassador to England. So you could have gotten in a lot of really fancy words in this. What they have not discovered is who invented Chateaubriand for two, because when I've ever seen it on a menu, it always says for two. Is it not possible to make Chateaubriand for one? I have seen it for one. I think we had it in the 70s a lot. It was like the the pinnacle of food in the 70s to have Chateaubriand. I don't see it on the menu too often anymore. But, but this I, is like right up your alley, though. I mean, this guy was a writer. He was a diplomat. He was the ambassador to England. He had a really long French name. And the most important part of his name for posterity is Chateaubriand. Which Would you like weird. to join me, Kurt, in saying Chateaubriand? Chateaubriand. I thought his name was Briand, and it was from his house, Chateau. Well, so his house, was, of course, Chateau means house, but right. that was his family name. And I could see you walking into a restaurant or a hotel in the gilded age of New York and saying, excuse me, maitre d', yeah. maitre d' hotel, do you have nachos or perhaps Chateaubriand? So... I'm going to give you one last one here because we're running out of time. But, John, whether it's now or in your 30s or in your college days, did you ever go to and have an evening where you imbibed a little too much, drank a little too much, perhaps smoked a little too much, and you got very hungry in the middle of the night? I'm going to go with yes. And you went to the kitchen and said, just give me some food and we figure out how to make whatever I can in here because we did that a lot. Well, guess what? There's a guy who did that. The nice thing is he owned a restaurant. It was called the Brown Derby in Los Angeles. It's a very famous restaurant. It was 1937. And like the nachos thing, he was in the kitchen late at night. He was drunk and hungry and needed something. And he just threw everything he had in the kitchen into a bowl, mixed it up. His buddy was there, Sid Grauman of the famous Grauman's Theater. And Sid ate it with him, thought it was terrific. The next day, Sid came back and said, I want that again. My buddy, Robert Bob Cobb of the Brown Ooh. Derby. Give me one of your Cobb salads. Hence, the Cobb salad was born. John, give me one to end this podcast. This particular dish was created for the then Prince of Wales, mm. one Edward VII, Great back in 1896 which you'll recall, since you're an excellent listener, was the same year the Tootsie Roll was introduced to New York City candy store shoppers. And this took place at the Café de Paris in Monte Carlo. And I don't know why we just say Monte Carlo all flat and not with a French accent. Any thoughts on that? Yes, it's because we all grew up with the Chevy Monte Carlo and it was said as Monte Carlo. Yes, and that's clearly why, because... The Monte Carlo, uh, which came around much later and did not come with a kitchen in its backseat or its trunk. So the prince ordered a special dessert for himself and his young female companion. The chef, Henri Carpentier, produced this flaming crepe dish. And Edward, the prince, reportedly asked that the dessert be named after his companion, Suzette, ah. rather than himself. And that is how we got. Crepe Suzette. And then they took some Armagnac and gave it to everyone. And someone said, aha, 
Prince of Wales, court of one, two, three, four, with their elbow pointing out, and they made everyone drink because that's how we got the drinking game. Wales of Wales lost his tails. Wales tails on two. This has been fun. Kurt and I will be back next week with a brand new episode of Smart Dribble, where we promise the dribble and hope for the smart. Until then, we hope your life is filled with smart dribble. See you next week. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye.